Hello, you, and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about In Bruges, and we're talking about it with the fabulous Caroline O'Donoghue. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed, and we'll soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. In Bruges is a 2008 black comedy drama crime thriller film. (laughs) Thanks so much, Wikipedia. Directed and written by Martin McDonough in his feature-length debut. It stars Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson as two London-based Irish hitmen hiding out in Bruges. Caroline O'Donoghue is a New York Times best-selling author and the host of the award-winning podcast Sentimental Garbage. She's joined us before talking about Babe, where we were all crying in that episode. (laughs) This one has a a different tone. This one's like a bunch of friends catching up and uh, being a little snarky in a fun way. Uh, In Bruges is interesting. We talk about this kind of upfront in the episode in that it is certainly a feelings steeped movie, but we often talk about movies that have like warm tones in the show. And this one is biting and has a lot sort of going on in it and has characters with unlikable positions, positions, views of the world, and we uh, talk about that. So yeah, I guess that's a con- content warning for Imbruge for basically, I think everyone, I think everyone and everything, it certainly has many trigger points specifically around the dialogue. So that's a more broad content warning, but a specific content warning that I'd like to offer is that we talk a lot about uh, self-harm and suicide in this episode. So if those are things that you are not in the headspace to hear about, please know that and know that we have plenty of other episodes that don't require that specific warning. How are you doing? What's going on in your world? How are you feeling? What are you thinking about? What are you reading? What are you watching? Let us know. Uh, we are on social media in a bunch of different places. We're on the Elon Towering Inferno. <laughs> Still, I guess. Uh, we are on Blue Sky. We're on Threads. We're all over the place. I'm posting videos on TikTok. We are posting videos as a show on Reels, uh, videos that are little clips of this show. And I have been really enjoying them. They've been edited by uh, Alyssa Onofrio, who was on our show talking about Gremlins 2 not long ago. And uh, uh, people seem to be enjoying them. So check us out in all of those places. Let us know how you're doing. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. If you are in or around San Francisco or the Bay Area, we are going to be at San Francisco Sketch Fest this Saturday, which is February 3rd. We'll be joined by our great friend Chelsea Weber-Smith of American Hysteria. We will be talking about Forrest Gump. It's going to be fun. I would love to see you there. If you, like me, are looking around at the world going, what can I do? And uh, you're especially passionate about uh, wanting to call for a ceasefire. You can get in touch with the folks at Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, They have actions and events in your area. We'll have a link to them in the show notes. You can check out more about that. And or you can give to the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund. I'll have links to both of those in the show notes. And with that, it's time to uh, hide out in Bruges with our great friend, Caroline O'Donoghue. Let's go, girls. <laughs> Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. How... 
is it going in your neck of the woods? Um, what a loaded question. Do you really want an answer to that? <laughs> no, but I'll take it. I would, I would love, I would love an answer to that. Truthfully. Um, my character keeps announcing that it is connected to the computer every 15 seconds. And I think it's going to drive me insane. Oh no. It makes this little noise. It's like, which makes me think about how life in modern times is about being surrounded by little machine noises, little machine burps, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and tiny red lights. Yes, this is true. And like, you know how, well, this is my way of announcing that our guest today is Caroline O'Donohue. I like this way of doing it. Host of Sentimental Garbage. <laughs> and that one of the things that we enjoy doing in our chats is pen pal questions. Ooh. Which is like, dear Caroline, do they have Target in England? If so, what are the in-house brands? And do they have the little impulse by area at the front? Please send me some smarties. Your pal, Sarah. <laughs> Dear Sarah, no, we do not have Target, but we do have little. And I think like in a normal Target, like there's like um uh, there's food and things, but there's also like a big wire tray full of deals. And in those deals might be anything from like a new pacemaker to a yoga mat <laughs> That's my to daughter. like a, a, a strimmer. And you just go to the middle aisle of little whenever you need something miscellaneous for under 45 quid. You're like, I have to get a present for someone I don't know very well. Yes, 100%. That's what you do at Little. Well, anyway, we're talking about In Bruges, which <laughs> is so exciting to me because this was a movie that my dad and I watched and enjoyed together. Oh, and I can great. only say that about like six or seven movies. What were the others aside from Amadeus? <sighs> Short Circuit 2. Amazing. <laughs> Once Upon a Time in the West. Cool. Lovely. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Wow. What a spread. I think Million Dollar Baby. Wow. Yeah. What are we learning here? <laughs> I don't know. I was hoping there'd be a pattern. <laughs> the pattern is, is man feelings. It is. And Caroline O'Donoghue. Yes, hello. Why is this a movie that when uh, you saw it mentioned on the social media, you were like, I would love to talk about that. I know. Yeah, I think the idea of like me going through my podcast finder and seeing that you guys had done this with anybody else, just like it filled me with such a kind of a terrible future rage. And um, <laughs> I, I think I felt like I felt like, you know, I'm pretty sure I've, I'm their only Irish friend. And if they get a non-Irish person <laughs> to come on and talk about in Bruges, I'll kill myself. So um, It'll be a hate crime, you know? <laughs> it will be a hate crime. How dare you? Representation matters. Uh, actually, you know, I think there's a, an enormous over-representation of Irish people in the media right now, which... Um, I hope that doesn't get corrected while I'm still having a career. <laughs> but you know, this is this is an enormously meaningful movie to me, and I'm not sure if it is a representation thing actually, because it came out in 2008, and it's very much kind of modeled on this kind of Guy Ritchie sort of gangster movie mm. thing, where it's, it's it's very like snatch and layer cake, and which themselves were very like kind of Tarantino. This idea of like these very fast moving, chatty new gangster movies that are really, I mean, I, I do think that kind of like genre of gangster movie and maybe all gangster movies isn't really so much about gangsters so much as it is about codependent friendships. <laughs> um, and which is why women love gangster movies, you know? <laughs> it's like about seven people in the world around them. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, okay, and it's, it's you know, so much of those movies like Pulp Fiction or Snatch or whatever and, and in Bruges is about like the downtime that gangsters have when they're alone together and how they parse out the things they do to people and to each other and I think no movie does that as good as in Bruges and so as a as like a writer and everything I admire it hugely but as like an Irish person it's also feels massive because like there wasn't a ton of movies about us and and it's you know obviously in Bruges isn't about ordinary Irish people it's about like these two Dublin gangsters who are working within like a East End London criminal circuit and then go to Bruges. So like, it's not Irish in theme, but there's something about these two men that is so like every man I'm related to and or (laughs) have slept with prior to meeting my (laughs) husband who's English, that it's just, it feels like home to me in a very strange way. Excellent. And you were were saying earlier that you weren't sure about this movie is this movie's a little mean. It's a fucking mean movie. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about the substance of the quote meanness of the movie is like this, and we'll talk all about this, but like I love a movie that gives us likable but in many ways irredeemable characters and makes us spend time with them and doesn't ask us to agree with the things that they say well what's redemption really that's a good question (laughs) as we go forward that's i'm sure we're gonna ask that a whole lot in this situation but i i like that most of the people that this is asking us to you know at least say they don't deserve to get executed is really pushing the envelope on what we have to accept of them <laughs> it's not just like so. you know the the classic questions of like what we accept of characters and whose side are we on and redemption and all these like story theory topics it's more like these characters say terrible things that i would never ever repeat agree with or endorse and yet make me laugh so hard <laughs> yeah amen i agree you're also like, who, who, who am I to, to police the language of an Irish hitman who's going to die pretty soon? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. So uh, we should probably try to explain the plot of this movie. And Sarah, I would love to volunteer you for that task as a. Uh, that's your task. <laughs> As that is my task. So my task is interrupting. And that's the one yes. that the people are really here for, dare I say. <laughs> so, uh, well, I would like to start by making the observation. Caroline, that I I think that this movie is very a play. Do you agree with that? Oh, it's very a play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is a gangster movie that's also it's like fit into a very a play uh, model because Martin McDonough is a playwright first and foremost, mm. and and it has this kind of like. Sorry, for people who don't know, (laughs) I have a podcast called Sentimental Garbage, which has a lot in common with You Are Good. And on that podcast, we have a recurring phrase where we call things very a play, which is when things just seem to step outside of normal dialogue and go into the kind of hammy or sincere or possibly too symmetrical or reach just reaching for your collar a little too much. And that is when we are very a play. And like there's a moment in this movie where um, Brendan Gleeson's character is talking to Ray Fiennes on the phone and he talks about um, Colin Farrell hates Bruges. He's lying about Colin Farrell hating Bruges and he says like, oh, he said the other day, I know I'm not dreaming but it feels like I am. And then the the conversation carries on and then Ray Fiennes says, you know, basically you're here to kill your friend. You're here, here to kill Ray. And then he goes silent for a minute and he says, you know, are you there, Ken? Are you, are you there? Whatever. And he says, um, 
I know I'm not sleeping, but I feel like I'm dreaming again. And it's just kind of this perfect symmetry, <laughs> this perfectly written thing that is just so a play. Yeah. <laughs> and I love it. And I, and I love that in, in, in movies and TV, too. And I feel like I also associate with very a play, I guess, maybe in my own definition, being a finite group of characters kind of held in a fishbowl, you know, where they have yes. a, a finite number of sets to to be on. And so because and in, in we see this in Seven Psychopaths, which I think is my favorite of his movies, and it's it's weirder and kind of even meaner somehow. Mm. But this whole thing. And again, you sort of you were talking about the Quentin Tarantino of it all earlier and the Guy Ritchie of it all is that you have, you know, again, it's like six to seven people that we see as recurring characters that like never interact with anyone who's not the other characters like they know. No one ever like goes to a store and has an interaction with someone who's unrelated to the whole thing. Mm, All of these mm. people. Everyone matters. Yeah. Yeah. And they all have they're all threaded to two or three of the others with overlapping threads throughout them. So to your point, like this could be on like three interchangeable sets and you have a play like this didn't have to take place in all the places that it did you can Mm. so see the kind of stage being sort of split and one side is is, one side is kind of elevated and it's their bedroom and the other is like a bar and sometimes the bedroom turns around and it's the town square you know you could stage it the way they stage la boheme yeah (laughs) how is that i'm not familiar well just the way that she described where you have like you can see an interior Mm. and that's the artist loft and then you go to the street outside to have like the big number where everybody's selling stuff. Oh my God. Mm. If they made this a musical. You just, right. Oh my God. <laughs> All this is missing is big numbers. And it already has one big number, which we'll talk about when, at the end of the movie. Would it be a jukebox musical or, or it would have to be an original musical, right? Probably. Oh my God. If it were like a Pogues jukebox musical, <laughs> oh, oh God. it would fucking. Oh man. Oh my God. Is anyone listening? <laughs> and then they sing Navigator as Colin Farrell is lying in a canal boat. Holy hell. Well, we're printing money on this podcast today. That's really true. (laughs) And also, it's a fucking Christmas movie, guys. Yes! It sure is. I can't believe we missed that. I didn't know. You could have fairy tale in New York in there and everything. Oh Oh my god. (laughs) God, people would love it. Yeah. All right. So what's in Bruges about, everybody? You can tell we're very excited about it. It's an exciting film. So in Bruges is about two Irish hitmen played by Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell, Ken and Ray, respectively. And they have been sent to Bruges by their boss, Ari, who... Uh, <laughs> what, we, what, what Sarah's trying to say is Ari. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is great because we... It's not clear if we're going to see him. And then when we do, it's very exciting. Like, I love these roles where, like, who the actor is, is like the payoff. And you're like, oh. Yeah. I had, for, again, it's like all I remember is the interactions between our two our two stars. I had forgotten entirely that Ray Fiennes is in this movie. And I was like, I did feel like it was, I was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's so nice to see him. <laughs> It's so nice to see him. And on the on the point of like uh, playing roles where like you're not sure who it's going to be and then the actor is revealed. It's like he's Voldemort, you know, it's like it's nice. He's, he's someone who can really carry that. He sure can. It's like a get Carter Voldemort performance. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The quote that I and probably everybody remember from get Carter is when Michael Caine runs into somebody from his past and is like, you know, I forgot what your eyes looked like. 
piss holes in the snow. (laughs) (laughs) So these two hetmen have been sent by their boss to Bruges, Belgium, which according to Rick Steves is a beautifully preserved medieval city. And that was a good one. Thank you. (laughs) Good reading of Rick. (laughs) And Ray is like performatively unexcited. (laughs) He's not thrilled by it. Ken immediately is. And we basically learn gradually that they have been sent there because Ray, while doing a hit, what turned out to be his first job as a hitman, um, had to kill a priest in a confessional and accidentally shot a child who was waiting to go inside and who had a list of his confessions to read, which Caroline were. Oh my God. I can't remember exactly what it was, but one of them is being bad at maths. Yes. What are the three of them again? It's so awful. One of them is being moody. Being moody. Yeah, being moody. Oh God. Do you know when I was growing up, I was six making my first confession. Like, they asked me to feel bad about something when I was six. (laughs) I didn't realize you started confessing that young. I had assumed it was like, I guess, is it communion that you start doing after you're confirmed? No. So you confess first so your soul can be clean for you then to do your communion. Okay. And then you sort of let that cook for about six years and then you do your confirmation, at least in in Ireland in 1996. But I I was kind of young for my sort of year group as well, so... I was yeah six and doing my first confession. And I remember doing that, like writing down all my stuff and like um, all that. And I remember feeling like my real sins were too bad for the priest to hear. <laughs> and that like he had to be protected from them. And so I like invented sins and then felt like double bad about that. Oh, no. Right. Like, isn't that the whole that must be the most of the thing, right? Is that you're like, I can't tell you the actual sins. I'll tell you this other thing. So now I have compounded guilt. Like even more abstract guilt. It is awful. Yeah, and I remember it so clearly because my actual real sin that I felt was um, too bad for the priest to hear was that I had once left a birthday party without asking. (laughs) Basically, it was like a birthday party on the road where I lived and I wasn't having a good time. So I just left and went home. And then my mom said to me, she'd gotten the call and she'd been upstairs and she didn't realize it was in the house. So she was like, oh, fuck, my like six-year-old is missing. And then she came down and she saw me just standing there and she was like, like, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm, I was terrified. I thought you were like, had been hit by a car. And second of all, like, that's rude. And she was just, she flipped out on me. And it was like the first time I ever really remember my mom flipping out on me. And so mm-hmm. then like, I, I had internalized that as being like, oh, I, I've done the worst thing a person can do. I can't tell the priest. Oh so gosh. I just lied and I was like, I mean to my brother. Like, <laughs> She was worried that you'd been shot by a fuck up Irish assassin. It happens all the time. That is... Uh, that's, I don't know. It's very depressing to think about very small children having to confess sins, I gotta say. But that's why this movie is so steeped in a culture. <laughs> yeah, right. It is. I feel that way. Because it, 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 you know what? It's steeped in the culture of obviously Catholicism and there's an enormous amount about um, religion and judgment and purgatory and all that kind of stuff in there and whether you can really atone um, which is weird, oh, weird to me because like that's essentially what Catholicism is supposed to be based around is the idea that you can confess mm. and be free. And yet because everyone lives in this like turgid, constant guilt thing of like, well, but not my sins. They're too bad kind of thing. Mm. Um, it just never really works that way. And so I do feel like despite 
Martin McDonough, technically, he's like a second generation Irish filmmaker and the movie entirely is set in Bruges. It feels very at home to me. Yeah, it has, it has Jesus's blood in it. <laughs> it turns to water during times of great crisis. This movie has Christ's blood in it. <laughs> it's so Catholic in its disposition that a character is Christ's blood. <laughs> Yeah, right. Like, and do you know what, Alex, you've just sort of like triggered something for me with this, which is like, you know, this is these are about two Irish gangsters who live in London as part of this kind of like very Guy Ritchie scene. Right. And it's kind of this thing of like, yes, it's a movie about, you know, wherever you go, there you are. But it's also they've come to this town that like has been honored by the Crusades. Like they've come to the, like they might as well have gone to Jerusalem. Do you know what I mean? They're at this sort of like Catholic fucking there everywhere is a church and it's like oh no matter how far you run from like the religion you were brought up with there you are as well so there is that kind of religious undercurrent that is going through it you know right right. blood jesus blood (laughs) you know you gotta have the blood i mean it is like i feel like we've been talking about catholicism a lot on the show lately somehow yeah jesus christ superstar literally i pressed the publish button before i got on this call yeah and like it is i don't know religion is famously very interesting and it i think my favorite thing about catholicism in this moment is that it was like hello we are replacing your pagan religions please stop being pagans you have to be catholic now and then they were like just kidding we're pagans basically we're obsessed (laughs) with blood and ashes we put ashes on the children the children drink the blood there's so much blood guys (laughs) yeah you eat some flesh it's going to get wild. Ton of gold, lots of secrets. The obvious thing about the satanic panic I kind of forget is that it's like, no, Christians are the ones who feed blood to kids. It's fine. <laughs> it's a metaphor. It's fine. It's just a little sip of wine. <laughs> Literally, wars have been fought over it not being a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Henry VIII killed people over it not being a metaphor. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, not in my house. But like, why? where's the flavor, though? If it's literally, you know, blood. What? Where's that (laughs) blood flavor? (laughs) So we got a couple of Irish mobsters. (laughs) One seasoned, one not so much. Um, And so they go to Bruges. And so Colin Farrell is haunted by the fact that he accidentally killed a little boy. And Brendan Gleeson soon learns that he is going to have to kill Colin Farrell. And that's why they've been sent there because their boss, Ray Fiennes, loved it so much that he wanted Colin Farrell to experience a beautiful city before he died. (laughs) It's such a lovely detail. Like all of the details of our quote, like big bad in this movie, just put him on par with everybody else, which I really appreciate. It's like, he's disappointed that he, he initially gets the sense based on how it's recounted to him that Colin Farrell doesn't appreciate the experience as much as he did when he was there like 25 years ago. It's so funny and it's so incredible because like this, you're right, every every single role in this movie, it is like a play because it's you know, everyone matters and everyone has to sort of make sense on many different layers. And so Ray finds his character has to be legitimately threatening, but it's also he needs to be as funny as everything else that's going on. Otherwise, it's just a boring scene or it's boring dialogue. Hmm. And so like, 
So that thing of like Brendan Gleeson sort of doubling back being like, no, no, he does like it. He didn't at the, at, when we got here because of that dual carriageway. But like, then he said, it's like a fairy tale. Like, oh yeah, it's like a fucking fairy tale, isn't it? And it's like the dual carriageway must be new. Like, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it must, so it must be new. The story. Yeah. It's gorgeous. It's so, so amazing. And I, it made me think a lot as well how like, Maybe I'm sort of uniquely qualified as a, as a European person uh, about this, but there was like this huge explosion of um, like, I think in the late 90s, there was a massive deregulation of the airlines in Europe, which meant that basically uh, you could run scheduled services really cheap anywhere in the EU, EU to anywhere else in the EU. So prior to that, people were like going to Spain once a year for their holidays. And that's that was their or to England to see their cousin. And that was the kind of extent of most people's travel. And then there just became this moment around like the 2000s of being like, and I, I was a young person during this moment, so very much availed of it, of like, you can go to Krakow for 20 pounds. <laughs> like, And like, I went to Krakow for 20 pounds. I went to Budapest for 15, you know, and it was like this crazy wow. moment to the point where like me and my husband now when wherever we're booking flights anywhere and he's like and it's like you know 200 quid to get to Amsterdam or something he's like oh, can we not get any cheaper I have to keep reminding him like that time is dead that moment that you and I came of age in <laughs> is no longer of like going to Poland mm. for 25 quid just because like of you know fuel prices and, and like also air travel should be expensive like it shouldn't be like taking the bus mm. but I do think that like that was like I love Martin McDonald. I respect him very much as like a creator, but I think this is his only movie that he's made about people. And I think the the, the kind of the shred of recognizability that it's very much about people is that it spoke to something very real and in the moment of like Irish and English people going to Central Europe as quote unquote Europeans because we're all in the EU and therefore we should understand one another and then finding themselves feeling so alien hmm. having nothing to do but like but drink as Colin Farrell would say a gay beer for my gay friend <laughs> and like just walking around cobblestones being like who is this what am I you know and I, I just I find that so resonant and so of that time Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's fast. Thank you for that background. That certainly gives it like a, a whole new dimension. But there has to be, I, I have to think, well, this is part of me and Sarah's pen pal relationship where it's like, uh, I think I, I'm actually getting the Eurostar tomorrow to Paris um, for a work thing. And uh, Sarah said to me something like, you know, it is crazy to me that you can be in France in less time it takes for me to get to like fucking on Rouge um, but like it's crazy to me that like New York and LA are in the same country or that Louisiana and, <laughs> and Utah are in the same country and like it, but is there that same thing as Americans where like you get in a plane you arrive somewhere in five hours you should feel connected to it you, you want to mm. feel something you can't it's mm -hmm. alien it's weird it's ancient it's strange like does that same mm. sense happen in America I think I think in different ways it happens because I, I think like it's so interesting to me that New York and L.A. are obsessed with the differences between them as so beautifully delineated on Sex in the City, mm -hmm. where like they are very different. And when you put it that way, it's like, of course, you're very different. You're on opposite sides of a continent. Like it's mm. the equivalent of being in like, you know what? <laughs> I don't even know the equivalent distance in another part of the world, but I had sort of several years after Trump won the election and before the pandemic happened when I just saw a lot of America, which turned out to be very lucky timing because then for a while that was mm -hmm. much harder to do. And 
it really does feel like you are in different countries that have the same chains, which gives you a feeling of continuity and the same like the same enemies in the form of of politicians. But Alex, what is, do you agree with that assessment? What do you think? Yeah, I do. I do largely. I mean, I think the historian Colin Woodard wrote a great book. Uh, American historian wrote a great book called American Nations. And he breaks down sort of the U.S. into 11 different distinct sort of regional cultures. And I think that like it can certainly feel different going from, you know, Maine to Texas, anywhere to Texas, really, you know, sort of like one place to another, one place to another, because there are like distinctly different cultures. But like the overall basket of this is decidedly America is always kind of there. Mm. But there are certainly places in the country where I, I end up and I'm just like, this feels whole, like 100% different from anything that I'm used to. And then you just see like a Walmart and you're like, oh yeah, we're here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas this is like a profound cultural shift thing. That's like, but it's also, it's not just the fact that like they're in a different location. It's like Ray's fundamental inability to be a tourist <laughs> and what it requires to be a tourist in like, Oh, like it, it requires a sort of a level of like curiosity, sort of patience, sort of ability to adjust yourself, your parameters of the world, and like you know all all these things that it takes to be a guest in somebody else's country. He doesn't have, and it's such a wonderful way to like get to know two characters through the lens of like, well, how how are they tourists? It's like I just don't think you, you see it a lot. There's that level for sure. And that's that's happening with regard to just like how his character is. And in the U.S. version of this movie, you'd get a New Yorker who doesn't like leaving New York like yeah. that's the, the, or the Bostonian who doesn't like leaving Boston. But the other thing that I find fascinating about Ray's lack of ability to engage anything on, on a tourist level, I mean, he hates it from the get like he hates it the second they step foot on the land. But the fact that they're traveling and sort of essentially like looking and taking in all of this like medieval Catholic imagery mm. while he has the guilt of having just murdered a child in a Catholic church. Yeah. Yeah. I guess no one's a good tourist when they're taking in that's <laughs> that they've murdered someone. It's <laughs> really haunting. I imagine that's very difficult. <laughs> but can I also take this moment to have a, a slight, very slight misandrist rant? Which is that? Oh yeah, please. Men are generally <laughs> terrible tourists because, uh, <laughs> as a rule, I think because they don't have bags. Yeah, they don't have bags for one, so they don't bring out, uh, you know, SPF or uh, mosquito repellent or all the things that you need to have on you, or a, li a little snack. You gotta have the snack, the little biscuit that comes in the room in the tea and coffee station they have in the room. You gotta put those biscuits in your bag. That's what women do. Yeah, but also. It's like, I feel there's such a thing within masculinity of like, you don't want to be on the back foot. You don't want to look stupid and you don't want to get ripped off. And being a tourist mm. is about being on the back foot, looking stupid and being ripped off. And like, I just, yeah. I've spent so much of my heteronormative life with men in other countries being like, look, let's just like sit here in the harbour. Let's pay 20 quid for an Aperol spritz and have a lovely time. And they're like, 20 quid for a bit of Prosecco and some Campari. No way. I'm like, but we're in the... We're in the boat. Yeah. We're where the boats are. Yeah. What else are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> we got to be bled a little bit. I just don't mind being fleeced. 
Not if you can sit by a harbor. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's the price of seeing the harbor. But I do think there's like something in masculinity that's about like, if I'm being ripped off, then it means I'm being laughed at. And like all these like virile Spanish men are in the kitchen just like laughing at me. (laughs) (laughs) Men don't want to be spiritually fucked in any way. Yes. Typically. And that that makes it hard. Yeah. It makes it hard for them to enjoy places. <laughs> Brendan Gleeson in this movie is at that age where things are softer. I know. And it's so nice to watch. He's like, you can fleece me. Yeah. <laughs> it's part of it. He doesn't have anything to prove. He just wants to enjoy the tower. Right. There's a section of this movie that I do. I want to unpack for a second because I feel like I can see kind of a couple of distinct things overlapping where we have we go to the tower, this beautiful medieval tower and this group of fat Americans who are very much not played by Americans. I looked it up and the main guy is played by a Welshman, which you can always tell. (laughs) It's evident every time any one of them opens their mouths. You are just the rudest man. They're doing their best job. Yeah. They're like, she like studied videos of like Wisconsin woman loses it or something (laughs) to... (laughs) To perfect that voice, you can you can sell you can see the work that went into it. But I love that, and I'm sure that this is like a union thing or something. But I love that they like didn't hire actual Americans. They just were like, just do an American, because like that's what we do to the rest of of you guys. So it's nice to see that done. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this. Basically, the conflict is that Colin Farrell rudely is like, you'll never make it to the top of the tower. You're too fat, and then like has a little chase with the Welshman Mm -hmm. who's like (laughs) wife or whoever is like, you are just the rudest man. And then they go up and Brendan Gleeson very nicely is like, oh, it's a lot of steps. You might not make it up there. And I feel like to me, what there's like an overlap of like Americans as like rude, crass, bad tourists who bring our norms wherever we go. That is very true. And that we do deserve to be accused of. And then there's like, the symbolizing of that through fatness, which is, I think, where we've really gotten in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously, fat phobia, huge problem. This movie, and I would say 80% of movies in general. Yeah. Um, but, like, do you not think that in this case, the, I don't feel like the movie's on Colin Farrell's side or no. anything? I feel like. But we just want to watch him be a dick. Yeah. We, yeah. Well, no, I, what I was going to say is the, the counter to this scene is when he fights the American in his brain, the American <laughs> at a restaurant, mm-hmm. and he like blames him for John Lennon's death and later finds out that it was a Canadian, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is so funny. I mean, like, I love, yeah, you're like, this guy isn't right about anything. No, he's not right about anything. No. Everything he does, everything he says, even when he's giving the skinhead shit, like he's giving the skinhead shit from like both a homophobic place and being like, before you guys used to be tough and just like kick the shit out of Pakistani teenagers. And it's like every single thing he says, even when you think he's going in the right direction, it ends up paying off in the wrong direction. And that, Alex, is Irish men. (laughs) (laughs) There's something strange. Well, the fact that it's played by Colin Farrell certainly is helpful. I know I'm going to bring a cultural context to this, but maybe even when it doesn't belong. But there is something very unique about, like, Irish men specifically, where it's like, I think in general there's a thing with the Irish character about um, knowing 
very little about a lot. Hmm. Our, our educational system is very broad. Like people in general tend to be readers. And so you get a lot of like, there's like, for, so, like that, that bit where he's just like randomly like, you know, lots of midgets kill themselves. <laughs> like, or whatever. I, he's like, he knows a statistic about uh, like dwarves who kill themselves and he just randomly shouts it out. And like randomly spewing out like Wikipedia facts and like, <laughs> things that you believe to be true and and randomly invoking the Vietnamese war and like, you know, bringing up John Lennon's death is such to me a quality of a certain kind of Irish man that I have like known my whole life of like, or for example, like, you will not sit through a dinner at my family home should you choose to go there without somebody invoking the Kennedy assassination. (laughs) And and (laughs) Ireland is very much just like a... um, a microcosm, like, like, a, like a, a sealed society that has not moved on since 1963. Like when I, I was home once and that movie Jackie was on, you know, the Natalie Portman, Jacqueline mm-hmm. Kennedy biopic. Oh, sure. And um, I went to go see it with my dad and I had to sit in the aisles. Like, <laughs> it's insane. For a movie that like, I think essentially went straight to Netflix in the States. <laughs> well, and so, so yeah, basically we're, they're hanging out in this, City. Brendan Gleeson has the orders to to kill Ray. There's a whole thing about how he has to see a guy to get a gun, which is a very big cultural difference. Um, In the alcoves, you have this word, yes. (laughs) The alcoves. The nooks and crannies. (laughs) So good. That guy should be in uh, English muffin commercials. Okay, so simultaneous to all of this, there is an independent film being made in, in beautiful Bruges. And Colin Farrell hits it off with a woman who uh, appears to be working with the movie people, played by Clemence Poesy, who I know, and Alex, I bet you know, as the nice French lady who Chuck Bass brings back from Paris after he gets shot. (laughs) What's her name? Her character's name? Chloe. Chloe. They have a nice date. They have this kind of like double bluff moment where she's like, what do you do? And he's like, I'm a hitman." And she's like, I supply drugs to movie sets. And it turns out they're both telling the truth. <laughs> and then they go have sex or start to. And then her ex-boyfriend busts in and do something. They no, he, as know. he says, I only put my hand on her thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they get to the hand stage. <laughs> And her ex-boyfriend busts in and does something they apparently do typically to tourists, which is to rob him once he's, you know, up in their lair. And it's it's very fun watching Colin Farrell defend himself in this movie also, because it's, mm. I mean, what, it's like a style of like normal person, but very quick <laughs> and very like practice looking hand to hand combat that like doesn't look pretty, it looks cool, but like not in a way that... It's, oh yeah it's like a sudden messy burst of violence it's a normal guy thing yeah it's not like yeah. posturing or like sort of getting into a stance it's just like a messy defensive slash offense that happens real fast and real convincingly but not in a way that feels like it's taking place in another universe yeah that's exactly it it feels like somebody who did a little bit of boxing when they were young and then like probably did some work as security guard slash guy outside of a club did a few jobs like went went unpaid to a few like gang fights and was pretty like pretty handy in them and then like met 
you know, Brendan Gleeson and and formed this weird sort of peep show Jez and Mark friendship with him. You know, it it doesn't feel like someone who like knows karate, like the lollipop man. Totally. <laughs> What's a fucking lollipop man doing? Karate? <laughs> he hasn't gone to like a, you know, a remote unnamed East Asian country to like learn from somebody he's later going to kill on a train or whatever. Yeah. And so Colin Farrell blinds Chloe's ex-boyfriend by shooting him in the face with a gun loaded with blanks, takes some drugs, supplies them to uh, Jimmy, who is a little person who's acting in the independent film that's shooting in what feels like maybe a little bit of an homage to living in oblivion. Right. That's exactly (laughs) what I thought. Not just because Jimmy's in it, but also like everything around him feels like it's out of living in oblivion. Yeah. Oh, uh, but that then there's then there's the whole thing about the race war, the very like Charles Manson informed yes. yeah. sort of like hel- helter skelter. <laughs> yeah. So they go to like a party. They like partying Jimmy's hotel room. He's got two hookers. We got two hookers and a racist dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> two manky hookers and a racist dwarf. Manky is such a good word. <laughs> manky. I also just, there's something that's so priceless to me. Cause like, I think like Brendan Gleeson, it's kind of hard to know how good Brendan Gleeson actually is as an actor because all he ever does is just like, you know, there's a big soft Irish man who's just here to sell you the thing, you know? <laughs> like, it's like, it's like, you know, it's not hard if you already are that. But then there's this like, he, he you know, Brendan Gleeson is, um, trying to come to terms with the fact that he has to shoot Ray. And then like, he's drinking a beer alone at the bar just before this party kicks off. And Ray shows up with the uh, cocaine and he's like, give me some of that or whatever. And he says, I thought cocaine makes you depressed. And he's like, yeah, fine. And then he like goes to the bathroom, takes a hoof of it. And then he comes back and his face is just so swollen and his mm-hmm. eyes are just black. <laughs> and he just looks like, <laughs> it's like, you, you don't, you're not used to seeing men who look like that also off their fucking nut on drugs and he's like oh that's what that looks like <laughs> and it sort of looks like if Donald Trump was allowed to age naturally would that's probably what he would look like is Brendan Gleeson on drugs I did have that thought yeah yeah which is like you know god why not just age naturally if you get to look like Brendan Gleeson yeah why not right well and speaking of the, the whole the race war scene this was like something I remembered really well from this movie from watching it with my dad when it was out and I remember him really liking it and it feels like again this kind of like pen pal culture clash moment actually uh-huh. <laughs> I love being pen pals <laughs> And goes to like he's so self serious about this insane kind of coke idea that he's having. But then there's a part where they run into Jimmy much later in the movie towards the end, and uh, Colin's a bit like, "Oh yeah, you know, how are you doing after the other night?" And then his Jimmy's face drops, and he's like, "Was I talking about the war again?" (laughs) 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 And it's also really it's a beautiful moment too because Brendan Gleeson is like, "Well, I had a black wife, and I loved her very much." And she and he he says, right, she was murdered by a white man in 1976. Mm -hmm. So where will I be in this wonderful war of yours? Mm. You know, and there's just like so much. I don't know. I guess it's that that's one of my favorite moments of his performance. I love that so much. And what is brilliant to me is like this scene is not a throwaway scene. It's not just like sort of like a flavor of the sort of like what's going on in the background scene. Like this is where we learn why he's indebted to Ari. Yeah. Sorry, I can't do it. Ari. Ari. It sounds like he remedied that situation with regard to his wife getting murdered. It sounds like he might have, you know, 
taking care of the murderer or something along those lines. And like, that's where his debt comes from. And I love that it's like such a small thing that ends up having another side of a payoff later in a conversation in the movie. Mm-hmm. There's no sort of like, you know, grand story that just like explains everything in one setting. Like you get these little morsels that add up in the end. And uh, McDonough hid one of these morsels in a ridiculous coat conversation. <laughs> yeah. And cause like, that's what those are like, you know, like <laughs> everyone's been on an after party where it gets suddenly incredibly real and maudlin and the only way to defuse the situation is to karate chop a dwarf and get out of there you know (laughs) and then to say short r's yeah (laughs) as if that's like a really creative insult which is so funny because earlier he's like i understand why you would kill yourself in this situation because everyone's calling you short r's which like suggests that like (laughs) he just can't stop himself from saying that He's like, everyone must think about this the way I do, right? Right. Everything with him is projection, and it's so good. He's just a little projection machine. He's a little, he's a puppy. He is a puppy. I just saw Poor Things the other day, and um, I don't know if you guys have seen it yet, but you you probably know the the basic concept, which is, you know, Emma Thompson, not Emma Thompson? Fuck. (laughs) Emma Stone has minded a baby and an adult woman, and like kind of the, the sort of parable of it is like, you know, what would women do and be like if they had if they didn't know about any kind of society that was like sort of tampering or dampening or restricting them Hmm. and in Bruges Colin Farrell's character kind of feels the same of like he Hmm. is like like a toddler in a grown man's body it's like what if you gave a toddler a bunch of cocaine and a gun you know and like just (laughs) right his disposition like to the point of you saying that the the coat thing like sort of always pulling the coat is he has the disposition of a like seven year old who you just told can't have another cookie that is exactly it like everything about him is so childlike and he's got his like sort of hands furrowed together and like you know i think if you were to say like oh so you know a child with cocaine and a gun you would think some like wild sort of gangster movie but it is just somebody who's swinging by their emotions all the time and feels very earnestly as well as very darkly and also has no separation from their environment mm-hmm. wherein like if he thinks Bruges is shit it must be shit like it can't be that he <laughs> finds Bruges shit it's like no it's empirically shite like right. yeah he brings out the inner nursery school teacher in an alarming way he does and nothing brings that out more <laughs> than when he um has his little glasses on I know, my God! Oh, it's it's just it's overpowering. What can be done? I, I I've never had a response to a man in glasses quite like that. It's incredible. <laughs> he he's doing like the reverse um, Clark Kent. Oh my God! Yeah, the re- <laughs> it's like the reverse. She's all that. It's like prior to that, he's like you know he's kind of a stupid and a thug. But you put those little glasses on and make him clean his teeth. It's like I can fix that. <laughs> I can fix him. He's a fixer-upper with character, you know? He can he can yeah. bounce back. So yeah, so we our plot is basically, you know, Brennan Gleason has to kill his friend. He's going to do it. He's advancing behind him in the park. And it turns out Colin Farrell has gone to a park to sit in front of a playground and shoot himself. Which, by the way, if you're, like, racked with guilt, like, maybe mm. don't traumatize a, a lot more children. But anyway, <laughs> um, and Brenny Gleason is like, no, don't. And so we have this wonderful kind of ethical scenario of, like, I was going to kill you, but you don't have a right to kill yourself. So I've mm. saved your life because it's it's my right to kill you. <laughs> 
but it's not your right. There's a lot of honor code stuff, which I think is always fascinating in these organized crime movies. Yes. And and it's also like, as we get towards the tail end of this movie, it's like, this is obviously good material. Mark McDonald is clearly a wonderful writer. But like, I do think that the way that these two elevate that material, and particularly Colin Farrell, is amazing where there's this moment where he's like, you know, it's so it's so comedic. It's like, you're about to kill yourself, but I'm about to kill you. And it's kind of this back and forth and it's very sort of farcical and funny. But then like, you just see Colin Farrell's big eyes happen and he goes, I'm allowed. And it's like this bo- moment <laughs> is both incredibly funny, but so tragic. I'm allowed. Like, and it's back to that childlike thing of like, if any if anyone should be able to kill me, it should be me. That should make sense. I I just there's something about the delivery and the crack in his voice that absolutely kills me. Mm-hmm. It's the best. And really, the the bottom third of this movie it does just kind of kill me. And um, you know, he puts him on that train to somewhere, probably Lille. Um, and <laughs> you know, this kind of idea that he's just supposed to sort of keep moving around for six years, you know, and six, seven years and just sort of like make a new life for himself. And like Brendan Gleeson is the kind of person that if he were younger, he could make that life for himself because he has a kind of level of ingenuity and softness and empathy. But Colin Farrell doesn't know how to be a person. And so there's like no, it's like he sends him off, but there's no hope to it at all. It's just like, oh, even if he did make it out of Bruges, he would like, yeah, he would be dead in a week. Like somehow either he'd like, provoke someone into killing him or you know he'd probably OD in a club in France you know or you know what I mean mm. like it's, mm-hmm. yeah. it's so I find it so upsetting <laughs> he's in a self-destructive Chuck Bass abroad spiral and he needs yes. to be rescued by a woman which I also love that like his love interest in this movie is like not angelic I mean, a bit, you know, because just look at her, but she's like kind yeah. of an egotistical criminal. She's a dirtbag. Yeah. I love that. She's a fellow. I mean, she's like an elevated dirtbag. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. That was my type for like 10 years. <laughs> right. It's a good type. And Caroline, what's the, the final act of this movie? Can you tell us the the rest? Sure. So so um, from there on, he's on this train to, to nowhere. Meanwhile, uh, Harry has come to kill Brendan Gleeson. No, sorry. Brendan Gleeson admits to Harry that he isn't going to kill him. He kind of, he's like, you know, you hear that, that's a train and he's not on it and whatever. And so this kind of complex moral code. If I were Harry, I'd be like, I don't hear anything. <laughs> la, 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 la. Because how's he supposed to hear a train? I don't know. And one of like those iconic scenes in this movie, which is uh, Harry batting his, f- he's in this enormous house, probably in Essex somewhere with his family <laughs> and wife and starts bashing the phone off his own table. His wife comes in and she goes, Harry, it's an inanimate fucking object. <laughs> and he goes, you're an inanimate fucking object. <laughs> well, his three angelic children look on. His angelic children. And I just, I love the wife so much. And like, it's so hard for a movie like this, for like a, a new character to just appear with their backstory, their family and their stuff so close to the end of the movie and still steal the show. It's like, it's a real like Judy Dench as Queen Elizabeth the first performance here. <laughs> and the thing of like, she's like, oh, you know, he's like, I'm going to Bruges. She's like, are you taking the boys? He's like, no, I'm not taking the boys. It's a matter of honor, blah, blah. It's so good. As you can tell, I love doing the voice. Um, <laughs> and he's like, father knows best to the children yeah. while also like revealing to them he might die while he's away. Totally. And then he just turns to his wife and quite sheepishly says, I'm sorry I called you an animated. 
I, I defy anyone to not be fascinated by these stories about the home lives of career criminals, which obviously is the core premise of The Sopranos, you know? Mm. There's yeah. a reason uh, that show is so loved. And it's like it never and that idea never stops being interesting. And I think we're fa we're fascinated partly by these questions of like, can you really erect barriers between different parts of your life? And the answer, I think, is always ultimately no. Right. Yeah. But there, there's always this sort of like attempt to particularly with Next Generation, which is why you get these scumbag men who are like obsessed with the purity of their own daughters, because like... <laughs> Like, you know, they know what they're like and, and they have no separation from their own environment. So they assume mm. all men are like that. And so it's like, my mm. fucking daughter, my fucking cunt kids. Um, <laughs> but uh, so he goes to Bruges to kill Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson sort of very nobly leaves his gun at home and says, you know, I, I'm not going to kill you. Too, like too much has got has passed into the water with us, you know, uh, very much implying the wife scene from earlier on. And says, I love you unreservedly. Let's go to the top of this bell tower and you can shoot me. And then uh, Ray Fiennes has this sort of like big crisis. And he's like, well, no, I'm not going to kill you now. Not after all that. And um, meanwhile, on a train, <laughs> Colin Farrell has been spotted by the Canadian friend that he assaulted, <laughs> but one night previously. <laughs> Which is perfect because earlier it's like, the, you know, his one directive, the one rule he has to follow here is keep a low profile. Yeah. And he goes out on a date and gets into the fight in the middle of a restaurant. And I'm like, is this going to pay off somewhere? And fortunately it does. It's what brings him back to Bruges, which is great. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, he brings up, yeah, it's like, again, it's like such beautiful, it is very, it's very a play because it's like just using all the tools that you have in your toolbox that already, you know, it's very beautiful writing that way. And so the, you hit the Canadian, brings him <laughs> back to Bruges. And while Harry and Ken are on top of the bell tower, um, Harry spots Ray and he's like, oh, there he is. Now I'll kill him. And then that this kind of um sets into motion this sort of like struggle, this three-way struggle. So Ray is in the square, sort of like having a beer with Chloe, and they're talking to Jimmy, and it's all very lovely. And you kind of get this lovely sense of like, oh, like these two kids could really make a go of it, you know, like they're they're having fun. You could see that they're gonna start, you know, in my vision of it, they're gonna start robbing tourists together in Bruges. That would be nice. Uh that's as much as he can pull off. Right. I think the best that Ray can hope for is that maybe he sells pirated DVDs to people <laughs> sitting outside restaurants, you know? Like, that's it. That's an important role in society. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's not hope for too much. And then, so, uh, while Harry is running down the bell tower, the great musical number of this movie begins, which is <laughs> Brendan Gleeson... He's been shot in the foot by Harry, but he realizes he can't make it down the stairs, but he can make it to the top. And so he crawls up, bleeding, to uh, Raglan Road, uh, as sung by Luke Kelly of the Dubliners, which is one of the most wonderful renditions of one of the most beautiful songs. I just love it so much. And he sort of throws himself heroically. Well, well actually, what first he does is that all of his loose change in euros that like he never had enough change to get to the top of the bell tower. <laughs> he throws out of his pocket and it kind of comes to, like plinks down onto the cobblestones beneath. And it's very feels like a Christmas miracle. Almost it feels like Scrooge saying you there, boy. And then at the crescendo of the song and Chloe and Colin Farrell are kissing. He throws his body down and he splashes on the cobblestones, interrupting the wonderful musical number. Uh, to bring his gun to Ray 
Uh, <laughs> but it but it broke. So uh. <laughs> it's so good that he's taken so much care and thought yeah. to get him the gun, and he breaks it. And there's mm. no more resonant payoff than like yeah. I did all the things to like help my friend. I sacrificed myself in order to do this, and I crushed the gun on the way down. I crushed the gun. Oh, it's so funny. <laughs> It's so, but it's what's so weird about this movie is that it gets so emotional, and that yes. scene, like I am like choking and hiccuping through tears whenever that song comes on and that whole kind of um, segment, and then it's immediately just like splash, body, blah, like it's like nothing that emotional can be that funny so quickly right after. I just don't know anything like it. Right. Well, the beats are so good because it's so emotional, and then it's like over the top violent like yeah. it's almost cartoonishly gory and then he broke the gun it's the, as far as like just sequencing goes it really yeah. takes you uh, on a little journey yeah and then and then you know ken dies by saying i'm gonna die now i think which i think is probably how most last words go <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm gonna die now i think which this begins kind of like a shootout between ray and harry which is which again, a main character has just died, and we're instantly on to more jokes, which is like Ray going up to the uh, hotel room and they're trying to organize a shootout through the the pregnant owner of the hotel. And they're like talking about where the canal is, and Harry's like, yeah. well, I just got here, haven't I? <laughs> yeah. It's a big fucking canal. I'm just going to. <laughs> they start a shootout across Bruges in, in the hubbub. Harry shoots Jimmy, who was wearing a schoolboy uniform, and in that moment thinks he has shot a kid, as he has stated earlier, if you shoot a kid, you should kill yourself, and then he kills himself. But Ray has also been shot, and so the final scenes of the movie are Ray in the back of an ambulance, fading in and out of consciousness, where he says that if he lives, that he's going to go make amends to the family of the boy he killed, and if he dies, he hopes he hopes that hell isn't like Bruges. <laughs> Finn. I kind of like the idea of Bruges being some kind of a, a purgatory place in this movie where, right. you know, you kind of go to be weighed. Yes. Well, it makes and it makes sense in the context. They, they talk about it at some point. They talk about purgatory, but like also it is the in-between place for him. Like this, like 14 days that they're supposed to be there is the in-between of like him having done this really bad thing and then like understanding what's next for him. So like it is mm. this purgatory place. Yes. And Ken has bought indulgences. <laughs> 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 to get him out of purgatory that is Bruges. I just, I wanted to like, with regard to the fact that finds at the end, there's a symmetry to the scene about what we see earlier with Ray shooting the child is like, we see the symmetry where later when he's shot, like he is the priest and then Jimmy is shot who we think is a child for a moment. Oh yes. You know, they he says like the child or he says something like something along those lines and it like looks yeah. exactly like that past scene. And then we get finds who honors his code by shooting himself and i like that throughout this this is a movie about people sort of like accepting consequences or not accepting consequences or like realizing sort of their time has come and reconciling that Farrell's not yet there because he's still image he's still a child like this is part of his journey about like sort of like maybe becoming the kind of adult who can understand the stuff that the adults in the movie are dealing with but like what do we make of and sarah i think this is something you probably think of a lot because you love the godfather and, and other gangster movies like what is it about the fixation in fiction with like gangster code mm. and it's like you 
usually very white because we do get this line from fine saying like he doesn't need an Uzi because he's not trying to mow down like 10 black kids in South Central, which is like a very judgy way of looking at other forms of urban and organized crime. So like, what do we make of this fantasy that like there are like these criminals that live by higher codes? Well, because the people who actually run our lives don't live by any kind of code, right? Like there's no honor code in politics or business. So we like yeah. to believe that in organized crime, there could at least be one. Sure. Yeah. And it definitely echoes this thing of like um, this sort of, I don't know how much, I don't know much about the Italian mafia so or how much of a myth this is, but that like the government in the old country in Italy didn't work properly, but the mafia did. And it was like the sort of system of decency and respect. And if you just respect the kind of the big man in town, everything works fine and everyone gets it. And it sort of be the sort of this replacement for government. Right. And therefore, yeah, this like code is rigorously followed. Yeah. And I think part of the, you know, at least the narratives that we tell is about the concept of parallel power structures and having a community that isn't served by legitimate power and therefore filling that vacuum. And I think we're right to romanticize that to an extent, just not this much. I think to your point, Sarah, with regard to it, it's like, well, we know the systems that are in everyone's lives, we know are sort of like uncaring and shitty and unkind increasingly, like by the day, seemingly more and more in a lot of ways. Although, you know, they've always been unkind to many populations and in a lot of different ways. And I think like power structures, regardless, particularly power structures that need to maintain themselves by way of some sort of violence, rely on telling a myth about how they are nicer about it. Mm-hmm. And like in particular with like organized crime with like national or ethnic identity, like obviously, particularly like when government is underserving particular communities, if that structure is doing any service of the community, even if on the back end, they're sort of undermining and undercutting the the growth and thriving of that community, it can become very easy to like believe in those myths of the alternative to the government, which you just see fucking you every day. Weirdly. Can I tell my one London gangster story or do we have time for that? Of course. I think we do. You can't tease it and not say it. <laughs> you can't tease it. A few years ago, I lived in this neighborhood called Deptford, which is like since become like incredibly expensive to live in. But at that time, you know, wasn't. And it was um very much filled with that sort of like classic London character from the 1970s. There was Pioneer shop on my road. You know, there was a daily market. You could buy apples and pears and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Um, it was really fun. And uh, there was two elderly gentlemen um, called Harry and Alex Hayward uh, who used to sit outside their um, uh, shop that they called the the DAG, the Deptford, something, Deptford Age and something. I don't know. I, I, I should have memorized it before I talked about it, but here we go. <laughs> so I used to walk by them every single day. They would sit in these deck chairs outside their little shop, which was a kind of a furniture shop that had a cafe in the back. And I would come by every day with my dog. And my dog is a little terrier. And every day they'd see her. They were like 70, 80 years old. They'd say the exact same fucking thing, which is like, oh, Harry, look at her. She is proper, isn't she? She is fucking proper, this dog. And they talk about how how in the 80s, they used to have these two Jack Russell terriers that were called uh, Sav and Chips. Sav being a Savaloy, which is like a kind of a sausage. So seven chips, just like seven chips. (laughs) And they were so, they liked my dog so much that one day they invited me in and like showed me pictures of all the famous people they had met and like all their old girlfriends from the 60s wearing fur coats and like them in casinos and like all the boxing champions they knew. (laughs) 
friends and all the all this and that and the other. And then, like, it got to a point where I was like, there's something, I don't know much about gangsters, but I think there's something going on here. (laughs) And and so I went and I Googled them, and it turned out that Harry Hayward was um, a a prominent leader of a South London gang who were, like, rivals of the Cray twins back in the day. (laughs) Both Harry and Alex had spent some time in prison, but in the early 90s harry won the lottery (laughs) literally won the lottery off a fucking scratch card and then he opened this furniture shop and cafe where like basically old people in the community with nowhere to go can like just sit and have like homemade coconut cake in the back of his furniture shop for like 50p and sit there all day because he just believes that people who are old should have some place to go that isn't a retirement home and uh, he died a couple of years ago. And I know most gangsters don't have a code of ethics, but Harry Hayward sure did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, see, and that answers some of the very issues we've been talking about. And it's like <laughs> gangsters need to contribute to the community more. <laughs> but, you know, gangsters are in the community, you know. They're <laughs> and then you'll be less likely to go to prison. Yeah. Well, like, yeah, that's I mean, I think that that's the other thing is like gangsters are more in the community than like an elected representative in the U.S. who spends all their time in D.C. and refuses to have town hall meetings. Yeah, that's a very <laughs> low standard, though. I'm not saying they're. <laughs> I'm not exonerating in any way, but like you at least see them sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I just think that if you're going to, if your livelihood is going to come from crime, then yeah, it just seems to make good sense to tithe some amount of it in some way. Yeah. I don't know. That's something that I do like about gangster movies too, is that they're, they're often meditations on how do you acquire and maintain power. Mm-hmm. And you think especially about Scorsese making Casino when he was working essentially under Disney, which basically didn't distribute, I think, Kundun because they didn't want to piss off China. Right. And like that thinking about power and how it functions is relevant to all of us because we all have to think about that in order to survive in some kind of power structure. Yeah, like how do you how do you get and keep power when you don't have anything useful like the law on your side, do you know what I mean? Which is like yeah. well, what what is the law but a threat, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what is the law but a threat is a new line of t-shirts that I hope you're okay with us making. Cuz <laughs> please do. And I and so and and at the very end like the last lines are him saying and I really really hoped I wouldn't die. Right. Yeah. And it feels like the redemption arc is maybe is not even necessarily being alive it's just recognizing that you you don't want to be one of the dead people. Right. Yeah, I mean and and once again to bring up Titanic, you know, one of the most powerful things about that movie is that only when death is certain does Rose feel like she wants to live, you know. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Because we meet, you know, similarly, we meet her in the, well, we don't meet her in the throes of wanting to kill herself, but it's certainly close to the beginning. Yeah. Great movie. (laughs) Well, we know, is there, there's, oh, Ray Fiennes. We know that uh, Ray Fiennes is a father in this movie who, Caroline O'Donoghue, is the daddy of M. Bruges. You know... It's always hard with this podcast. Do you go for the obvious or do you go for the obscure? There's definitely a patriarchal thing happening with Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell. But I gotta say Chloe, you know? Mm. I mean, she gets out of that movie alive. And there's something incredibly self-possessed about every scene that she's in. And it's like this genre of movie, it's really easy to have a female character that's just like an attractive thing for the hero to hope for. (laughs) And like to have her like 
just have so much to always know more than what's going on in the scene. And also the line, eh, not so much a homage and a pastiche is too strong a word. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you do speak English. Uh, just, just for that alone. I, I, I love Chloe. She's so great. When it's so it's it's funny initially because we think that, that a crew member is saying it. Yeah. And then it's even funnier when we realize <laughs> that the dealer. onset drug dealer is saying it. Love that selection. I'm going I'm going to pick uh, Marie, who is oh. the innkeeper, who again, she's a C. Very Jesus-y, absolutely. Oh, wow. Beautiful observation, Sarah. Yeah. There's a scene when we start to realize that Ray is going to go off to kill himself because he comes, we we hear that he's given Marie $200 that seems like it's his last $200 and it's for the baby because she's mm, pregnant. Euros, darling. Euros, thank you. Um, And obviously he has some baggage about uh, kids being alive and dead. So <laughs> I... <laughs> And I hope that your first child will be a living child. <laughs> and we'll have 200 euros to get started with. All of her interactions with these guys are really fantastic from her perspective. But maybe later touched by that, she puts her and her unborn child between he and Ray Fines, And Ray Fines is coming in with a gun to kill. And that's like a really, it's like a tremendously beautiful thing and a sacrifice that also is so funny because her observation of their interactions being bonkers is such a great crowd stand in for being like, why the fuck are these people like this? It's an amazing scene. I love Marie. Yeah. Marie is also one of the last people we see because he is looking at her while he's being carried into an ambulance on a stretcher thinking about the mother of the boy he killed. Mm. And so it feels like she represents conscience and motherhood and the oh, fact wow. that like a mother like you know, stood between him and certain death, like feels, feels redemptive, Wow. you know? Yeah. Also, there's, there's this great little boss moment from uh, Marie where uh, <laughs> Harry, Harry leaves a phone message about like, don't make me leave a message with a fucking receptionist. And then she writes that all down very diligently and then says, P.S. I am not the receptionist. I co-own it with my, my husband, Patrice. <laughs> it's so funny. Oh my God, Sarah Marshall. Yeah, who's your daddy in this? Is it Jesus Christ? Yeah, no, Jesus Christ is so not a daddy. He's he's a he's a boy. He's a daddy boy. No, it's totally Brendan Gleeson, and I feel like there is such a Briscoe and Logan kind of relationship between him and Colin Farrell in this, and it feels like you know he is kind of able to give whatever he has to impart it feels like and i don't know i just really feel for his character and it's a wonderful i don't know i think gangster movies are so popular partly because we want movies about men and their relationships and their love for each other and the only way we don't feel like it's too gay is if they're killing people the whole time <laughs> mm -hmm. and i think that's a really important function and i'm glad that we have that him and his gay beer <laughs> A gay beer for my gay friend. And the daddy is Caroline O'Donoghue because Amen. we were worried that this was a goblin movie, but really it's a very sincere movie about feelings. What? What? Even goblins have feelings too. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you so much to Caroline for joining us. It was great having you, Caroline. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for producing and editing the episode. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make our episode sound so sweet. Thanks to Alyssa Anarfio, who edits the videos for our social media. 
Thanks to Liz Clemo, who made the logo of our show. We appreciate that. It's one of my favorite things that I am associated with. (laughs) I love our logo and I love Liz Clemo's work and it all came together there. Find us on social media and all the places that we are. You are good or you are good pod. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is made possible with and by your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions. In exchange for that support, you get bonus episodes, so you get to hear us more. I mean, you know, that's great, right? (laughs) We did a Barbie bonus that came out last month. Uh, We've got a a new one coming up for February. And uh, you will help us pay the bills for this show, which we really appreciate. You'll help keep the machine rolling. (laughs) So support us on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions, get those bonus episodes, and help keep the lights on at You Are Good. Thank you very much. And while you're at it, if you want to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we wouldn't mind. We wouldn't mind that one bit. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. That's it from me. We'll talk with you all next week. Uh, Take care of yourselves. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. <laughs>